Narcissism is so frequently misunderstood. The idea is that narcissists love themselves too much. And the reality is, is that narcissists actually don't love themselves enough. If you get to the core of narcissism, what you are going to find is a deep feeling of emptiness and meaninglessness, a deep sense of shame. It's really critical to understand that when you're dealing with somebody that's got a lot of narcissism, those dynamics are what you can see on the surface. What's below that is usually a huge reservoir of shame. Dr. Peter Malinowski, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here, Lila. Thank you for having me. So for those who aren't familiar with your work, with your work yet, give us a little bit of your background. Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist and uh, my passion is really about overcoming the human formation deficits the things in the natural realm that keep us from a deep, intimate, personal relationship with the three persons of the Trinity, especially God, our Father. That's what I'm all about. It's all about overcoming what's in the natural realm, the human formation things that keep us separated from God. And what is your clinical background? So I'm a clinical psychologist. I got my degree in 2001, so it's been more than 20 years. Uh, I've been in private practice for for what seems like forever. Um, and uh, I've learned a lot of different uh, modalities, different treatment, uh, and I've been really looking for how can we ground, how can we take the best of what's out there in the natural world and ground that in a Catholic understanding of the human person. So I've been in private practice on my own in solo practice since 2006 and was, um, uh, became a psychologist in 2001. So. And then why psychology for you? Why private practice? What is it that um, initially drew you to, to the work that you're in now? So I really wanted to find a way to, to bring people together in, like I said, this relationship with God. I, I experienced some trauma when I was in college. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a big part of the story. Uh, it was not only psychological trauma, it was spiritual trauma. And so I really was also, when I went into psychology, like so many people, trying to figure out like what happened to myself. And I also wanted to make sure that things that happened um, to relatives of mine never happened to me. So that was more of an unconscious motivation. Um, what was more conscious to me at the time was I really want to find better ways. I really want to find ways that are consistent with our Catholic faith to be able to bring people, to be able to bring people along a journey, to accompany them along a journey that would help them, again, like I said, engage with God more deeply. Because what I figured out very early was that any problems that a person has in relating in the natural realm, any difficulties they have in their relationships, they're going to bring in because of their humanity, because they have one life, they're going to bring that into their relationship with God and with Mary as well. Got it. Can you can you share? You mentioned and whatever you're comfortable with, Doctor right. Peter. But you mentioned it was some of the trauma that you experienced that really mm -hmm. motivated your study, and then seeing trauma in your own family. All of our families, I think, at least extended families, have some sort of dysfunction or trauma. Is there anything more you can share about that for people to understand where you're coming from? Sure. I got involved with um, with an organization, a Catholic organization that um, that I think was psychologically coercive um and and really problematic and and i i was really naive i was you know raised in a family where there was a lot of idealization 
of um, of priests, a lot of idealization of uh, of of the church, uh, of the of members of the hierarchy of the church, and so forth. And so, um, so I was kind of naive and gullible, um, and I was looking for something. Um, I was looking for a way to shore up my own sense of 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 well being. My own that I was looking to find out that I was okay. And this is what, you know, kind of draws people into groups like this. And so I spent about 18 months in a group that was, I think, fairly harmful to me. And so as part of that, after I graduated, I was like, I, I want to, I want to find a way that, um, that integrates, um, that integrates the, the spiritual and the natural. And, and so, uh, as part of that, I decided that I was going to go to grad school. And I was really disappointed with a lot of what I had, what I experienced in grad school. I mean, I was hoping to kind of find a mentor, somebody that would sit with me under the banyan tree and impart wisdom and so forth. At the time, you know, there wasn't a lot of of, of, of integration at all with the spiritual realm. Um, you know, that's become much more popular in the last ten years, fifteen years. But back then, uh, it didn't exist. And so, uh, I said, "Well, we're going to have to create it." I almost left the whole field of psychology because I couldn't. I, I was having trouble finding that integration, but by the grace of God, you know, I did find ways to do that. So. All right. Well, there's so much to unpack here and there's so many topics that I, I was looking at your body of work and I was like, oh, borderline personality <laughs> disorder. That sounds interesting. Family systems. Let's do that. Um, one thing that is really a buzzword right now is the idea of narcissism, mm-hmm. uh, narcissistic family members, spouses, significant others, bosses, pol- politicians. Uh, <laughs> the word is thrown around a lot. So I thought we'd start with that because I think it's particularly relevant with this faith component about how narcissism can also, or narcissists can find special attraction in hierarchical systems, mm-hmm. you know, faith communities even. Mm-hmm. So let's start with what is narcissism? So narcissism, I'm really glad we're starting with what it is because it is so frequently misunderstood. Uh, people think that, and this comes out in, in definitions, right? So if you look at a definition, even from the American Psychological Association Dictionary of Psychology, excessive self-love or or um, egocentrism right that's a very common one the idea is that narcissists love themselves too much and the reality is is that narcissists actually don't love themselves enough and they don't love themselves in an ordered way if you get to the core of narcissism what you are going to find behind all the shields behind all the defenses is a deep feeling of emptiness and meaninglessness a deep sense of 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 shame. It's really critical to understand that when you're dealing with somebody that's got a lot of narcissism, that's just those dynamics are what you can see on the surface. What's below that is a usually a huge reservoir of shame. And what what do you mean by that? What is this shame? What does that feel like for that person? And where does it come from? Sure. So you know the shame is something that I've spent a lot of time talking about in my podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, episodes 37 to 49. There's like uh, 12 or 14 hours on shame there. Um, and a lot of people understand that uh, that shame is an emotion, right? But it's more than that. Shame is also this deep belief that I am bad or I am wrong. It's different from guilt. Guilt is I've done something wrong. I've done something bad. Shame is I am wrong. I am bad. I am unlovable. And one of the things that uh, that comes from that, it, the way that develops is because there's 
there's experiences that people had that lead them to 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 assume that the ways they've been treated are because they're not worth much. And so there's this there's this constant effort to try to shore up this really shaky sense of identity, this really fragile sense of who I am. And that can lead to um, you know, all kinds of ways that are counterproductive to the person. That's the terrible thing about narcissism is that it's 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 it actually is kind of like an autoimmune disorder. The ways that people with narcissistic dynamics try to cope with it actually set them further behind their objectives because they wind up attempting to to use other people to affirm them to to again have these external infusions of the sense that I'm okay and and in doing that they wind up alienating people and putting themselves further behind in terms of this um in terms of actual relational connection and so shame um, shame has this effect, and Brene Brown's done a lot of work on this, this effect of inhibiting us. It's a signal that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't, um, you know, kind of step out. Um, and it, um, and it, uh, and it can be really, really destructive for folks that, uh, for all of us, really, I think it's at the core of other psychological disorders as well. But what happens is that other people get used to try to, uh, counteract the shame, but in a way where, um, the, the person with narcissistic dynamics is not acknowledging that they have these these needs. Hey guys, it's a new year, 2024. It's time for some new meat. So you can check out goodranchers.com to get your American meat delivered. It's very cool because goodranchers.com, which is sourced 100% from American ranchers, is best in class meat, poultry, seafood, and pork. And they have some amazing deals right now for the new year at goodranchers.com. You can subscribe to get your meat package that comes in with free expedited delivery to you and get free chicken for a year. And guys, their chicken is amazing. A lot of the chicken from the grocery store today, I think is just flavorless or bland or stringy. Good Rancher's chicken is delicious and juicy. You're going to love it. So if you subscribe now, you get $189 value free when you subscribe in the month of January. So do not wait. Go check it out today. That's goodranchers.com. Use the code Lila at checkout to get $20 off your subscription and your free chicken for the year. That's the code Lila at checkout at goodranchers.com. So how what makes a narcissist? I've heard people say um, in clinical practice that we don't know. I've heard others say, you know, childhood neglect or trauma. And I've heard others say that it's somehow biological. Uh, you know, it's something else. What, what's your take on that? So I think it has a lot more to do with uh, there. There is some implication of biology, but it's really more like a, a propensity or proclivity. Right? It's not it's not something that's determined like trisomy 21. If you have trisomy 21, you're going to have Down syndrome. It's 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 determined. The, the the genetic effects aren't actually all that strong. I reckon what I see is so much of it has to do with what happens very early in a person's life. Are they seen, heard, known, understood? Are they recognized as a separate individual? Are they is there is there is there a sense that they are uh, that they're ontologically good, that they're good in their essence? Um, and when that's missing, when, for example, there's emotional neglect, when the person with narcissistic dynamics had a childhood where nobody ever looked at them as the apple of their eye, where they weren't cherished, where they weren't rejoiced in, where they weren't loved, then um, then you're setting the stage for this 
walling off of all of these integrity needs. There's six primary integrity needs that that we have. And those are the ones that those with narcissistic dynamics really don't want to acknowledge. It's the reason why they have difficulty with uh, gratitude, for example, or they have difficulty with remorse is because when you are grateful or when you have to say you're sorry, you're admitting that you have a need. You have a, you, and, and their sense of self is so fragile that that would be so disruptive that they risk a, a kind of decompensation or destabilization. Okay. You mentioned these integrity needs. What are those? So there's really, if you want to understand almost everything in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, 5, we're now in the, the, the revision of that. Uh, all of those di all of those diagnoses are pretty much just symptom constellations. They're really not the actual disorders. Uh, they're just symptom profiles. When when I um, when I look at a person and I look at what they're struggling with in the natural realm, there's twelve needs. There's six attachment needs uh, and six integrity needs. And and you had a guest. Um, I'm trying to remember. Julie Bonanno um, mm -hmm. was on in November. She she did a great job of kind of discussing mm -hmm. the attachment needs. Those are the ones about relationship. The integrity needs are not so much about people might be thinking moral integrity. We're actually talking about like cohesion. We're like talking about preserving like the integrity of, of, of our sense of self. That's what I'm talking about with that. The first one is survival. That's, that's the need to exist. That's the need to survive. Uh, the second one is importance, my need to matter in the world, mm -hmm. to be significant and not in the eyes of somebody else, but in more generally, more like, like I can actually, I actually matter in the cosmos. And the third one is agency. That is my need for autonomy, to be able to exert influence on others and to make at least a small difference in the world. And then this is the critical one for narcissists, those that are struggling with narcissism, is goodness. My need to be good in my essence, mm -hmm. in my person, right? To experience a sense of ontological goodness, not just that my actions are functionally useful to somebody else. Because typically you will see folks that develop narcissistic dynamics as having been narcissistic extensions of other people with narcissistic dynamics. Mm -hmm. Like they've been exploited and used. The fifth one, my need for mission, purpose, and a vision to guide my life. And the sixth one, authentic expression. That is my need to share and communicate with others what feels true and real within me rather than pretend otherwise. So what you're dealing with with somebody with, a, with narcissistic dynamics is this, this, this effort to recruit from other people, enough idealization, enough affirmation, enough putting them up on a pedestal so that they can begin to hope to believe that that actually is true. And most of this is really going on outside of conscious awareness. They don't know they're doing it, which makes, which is another layer of difficulty with this. So would it be accurate to say, Dr. Peter, that if there's a child, that their parents, you mentioned emotional neglect earlier, I think, mm -hmm. uh, their parents did not really see them, celebrate them. You know, they had their needs, physical needs met. Maybe they even went to some of the best schools or they had, you know, good education, but they never really felt like their parents loved them for them and took time for them. There was always an agenda or the parents were really preoccupied. That would be a, you know, potential perfect storm for the making of a narcissist. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if, um, if, uh, they were being recruited or used 
in that way for the parents. So in other words, it's really important that you get good grades. It's really important that you get into an Ivy League school. It's really important that, you know, that we, that we don't have, um, you know, any disciplinary problems at school because it reflects badly on the family, that kind of thing. So what are, what are your, what's your take on, you know, the whole phenomenon of child influencers? These kids who sometimes from birth or even before birth are basically, you know, to put it maybe crassly, but props in the parents, you know, entertainment sharing, you know, play out that they're going live before the public with and they actually monetize their child and they need their child to be cute and entertaining enough, wearing the you know new enough outfits, whatever it is to monetize their social media videos. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of risk with that, you know, it's hard to know in any given situation, but, um, so often, um, when you are into, you know, influencers and, and folks that are heavily into social media, um, yeah, I mean, that's a way to try to replace authentic relatedness. It's a, it's a way to substitute you know, the likes and the, and the clicks and the downloads and all of that are a way to substitute for real human connection. And it always leaves one starving. You're not going to get your needs met that way. So do you think there's a lot of, you know, uh, maybe predominantly more narcissism among say people who are child actors or not necessarily, it all depends on how the I think it really depends on the relational context. I mean, I think there is a way for children to act, you know, in, in movies and television shows where their needs are met. But I think if the child is starting to be, um, instrumentalized, you know, and is now important in the family because they generate an income or because they shine a spotlight, a positive light on the family, Mm -hmm. or because the child is a prop for the parent's own ego, then, then again, and that can be seductive for people that are looking for a way to have a sense that they matter in the world, you know? And so, so yeah, so the, uh, the question for me always comes down to what, what in this particular child's life, what are, um, what are the adults around that child? How are, what are their positions really? It's not even so much Mm -hmm. what they do as it is who they are in relationship. It's much more about the being with than it is about the doing. So it's hard to find, oh, if you see this behavior and this behavior and this behavior, you know, you, you know, you've got a trouble. It really has much more to do with how are we being with, how are we being together? It's meaning for the, you know, social media content creator, maybe creating content with their kids. It's how they're creating the content. It's less mm-hmm. about that the content was created. Yeah. I would say, yeah. How is it? Is it, is it collaborative? Is it fun? Is it, is it life-giving to the child or is the child, you know, now pressured to hit a production deadline? You know, is there uh you know, is there a need to make sure that we get this Christmas special just right? So we're going to, you know, we're going to do a 34th take on this because it didn't work, you know, the last 33 times, you know, that kind of thing. So. So would you say that narcissism is some kind of a spectrum where some people have it more intensely than others? And would you also say that everybody, because we all sometimes struggle with shame or with seeking validation excessively from others at certain times, then that would mean we all have narcissistic tendencies? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think when you get into tendencies, are there ways in which we might idealize and devalue? Are there ways in which defensively we might protect ourselves when we're feeling vulnerable? Sure. You know, is that narcissism? 
you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think we're all prone to, to some self-absorption. I think there's a wide variety of, um, of different symptomatic expressions of us not having needs met or us not, not flourishing. Um, but I do think that, um, there's enough narcissism, if you want to frame it that way in each of us, that if we want to understand it more deeply from a personal experience, we can so then the, the next question is, you know, how does one know? I, I Again, I hear the kind of the name narcissist thrown out frequently, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the public discourse and then sometimes in private conversations or you go to Reddit, it's like, am I dating a narcissist? <laughs> uh, how do you know this is somebody, okay, who struggles with self-absorption or some wounding or some shame um, and bad habits of behavior and relationship with others versus this is I'm dealing with a narcissist, clinically right. speaking? Well, typically in, re- in dating relationships, you won't know right away. You know, it, it, because this stuff gets hidden, right? And it, a lot of it has to do with, especially in like dating relationships, what are the needs that each person is trying to meet? Uh, a lot of dating, this may sound somewhat cynical, but a lot of dating and romantic relationships are driven by sort of complementary pathologies. Um, you know, it's a, it's a it's sort of like he's missing his left leg and she's missing her right leg. And so let's bind ourselves together and we can sort of limp through life. And really what I would want is that, you know, both people are able to sort of stand independently, but there is this idea of, you know, you complete me, you know, you provide me what I need. That's, that's a lot of what's happening when people are attracted to each other. People are generally attracted to each other at about the same level of, uh, psychological maturation, developmental maturity. And I want to just person, pause you right there. I got to yeah. interject here because that's such a, an incredible point you just made. So for the person who says, oh, I keep dating these narcissists, or I keep dating these losers, you know, what the right. heck? What you sounds like you're saying is that's yeah. actually a reflection on their own emotional and psychological maturity. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by the type of person they're attracted to. Mm-hmm. It's like a keys and locks, you know, kind of a, a kind of an analogy. Um, a lot of times one person is more obviously symptomatic, you know, um, but you know, for example, the, uh, you know, the knight in shining armor on the, on the big horse that wants to rescue damsels in distress is generally in as much distress as the damsels are. Okay. Um, you know, but it's not so obvious. It's not so obvious. And so now if somebody has been married for five, 10, 20 years, people can diverge as far as their level of psychological maturity. Cause you know, one person may be doing their work and another one isn't in the marriage and so forth. But at that level, typically you are, you are, you're, you're finding folks that are, are sort of, um, yeah, connecting in that complementarity, uh, that's influenced by, uh, the, the mutuality of the needs that they're seeking to be met in the, in the relationship. So someone who is, finds themselves attracted to, or let's say married to, let's go right, right. to marriage, um, who they suddenly wake up and they're like, I'm married to a narcissist. What does that say about their psychological state and what would you recommend to them for how to deal with the situation they're now in? Well, that's, that, that's a tough one. Um, the first thing I would say is to do your own work, to do your own inner work. One of the things that I see a lot is, is, is the hope that somehow my spouse will change. Sometimes, you know, sometimes there's not much you can do about that, right? The, the other person's sovereign over their free will. And what I recommend is that if you do your own internal work, 
Um, and that, that effort towards you doing your own internal, your own internal human formation work. And that, that, that isn't about trying to elicit something in particular from the other person. If you're willing to do it for you and for, for the other people in your life so that you can, that you can love better so that you can be flourishing more. That's really where we start, uh, where a lot of, where a lot of couples are, are, uh, are struggling is, well, I'll change if you change, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, and I, and I'm a big advocate for, you know, sometimes the other person might not change, but what I would say is if you do your work, then you are in a much better position to, um, to navigate the difficulties in the relationship, to see more clearly what the dynamics are. So, so, so back, one, one, I, okay. well, I think the reason the, 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 the word has gotten so popular is because there are a lot of people that have been casting about for a long time to try to understand their experience. So they run across something on Reddit or they, 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 you know, they take a quiz on the internet that says, is your spouse a narcissist? And it's got 20 questions and you fill it out. And they're like, bing, you know, then, um, it's like, whoa, and now I'm beginning to understand something about that, the, the dynamics that have been going on in my relationship for so long. Everylife.com is America's pro-life diaper company. These are high-performing diapers and wipes for your little one. I think you're going to love the product. They are great diapers. We've ordered a lot of diapers at our house, and Every Life does not disappoint. What's so wonderful about Everylife.com is you're not only getting a great diaper and wipes, and they have other products that are coming, so check it out, but that Everylife.com is a pro-life diaper company. They support your values, and they donate some of their proceeds back to the pro-life movement, including groups like your favorite live action. So check out everylife.com today. You can use the code Lila at checkout for 10% off your order. Order that bundle of wipes and diapers for that new little niece or nephew in your life, your new son or daughter, your friend's baby. It's a great gift. They also have these cute new mom baby boxes. Check it out at everylife.com and use the code Lila at checkout for 10% off your order. So what would be some um, in dating? Let's go back to dating for a moment. What would be some red flags in dating to indicate narcissism? And I don't want to let one person off the hook because I do really believe in what you're saying about, I mean, it's effectively personal responsibility for one's own emotional, psychological, and spiritual health right, to not right, just say, right. oh, this is a bad person I need right. to get away from. But right. the red flags I see in someone else are maybe reflections of red flags in me that are different, but still need to be addressed in a different, in, in their own way. Absolutely. Well, let, let me give you, a, <laughs> let me give you a little of my own history, right? So let's go back to when I was 19 and, and, and dating. Uh, Pam, who is who is now my wife, but we were young. We're in college. Um, I had really significant narcissistic tendencies uh, when I was young, and so did you um, know that? Did I know that? No, <laughs> I, I didn't. <laughs> uh, Pam didn't didn't wouldn't have framed it that way. Okay. Um, but in the in the, this 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 episode doesn't reflect well on me as a 19 year old so i do ask that people remember it was a long time ago i was young but well, it's, we were it's actually this is inspiring though because i think it's very rare that we hear <laughs> that people can have narcissistic tendencies and then overcome and be self-aware yeah. and get healing so this is great keep going <laughs> so you know 19 years old uh, and we're on a we're on a we're both students at northwestern university we went on this retreat together this catholic retreat through the newman center and I, you know, I was looking for narcissistic supplies, right? And I didn't connect. I, I, I sort of indicated, you know, I can't remember how direct it was, but you know, Pam, let's not hang out too closely together. Kind of because I want to meet other people. You know, I was kind of like, maybe there's somebody that can meet my needs better. 
you know? And at the end of the retreat, one of the other uh, co-eds asked, asked PM, do you know Peter? Like, we had gone through the whole retreat, and it was not clear that we were dating, you know? Because I was not engaged, not attuned, not willing her highest good, not loving her. I was out to try to fill up this void within myself. And um, there were other girls there. I didn't know them all. I, you know, I thought, you know, maybe there's somebody that, and I, this wasn't conscious. It wasn't like I even experienced it as though it was calculating, you know, or that it was, you know, sort of, I, 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 I didn't, at the time, I didn't really see anything wrong until I saw Pam's reaction, right? You know, because she was really upset. Totally makes sense. If one of, and, and we've, I've told this story to my daughters and they're like, dad, we're not going to date anybody like you, when, you know, when you were that age, right? I'm like, absolutely. I hope you don't. So that's a red flag. Mm. If you, if the, if the, um, if the attention is really based off of the, the, uh, the, the self-esteem needs of the other person in the relationship, uh, that's, that's a cue that they're not really seeing you. They're not really hearing you. They're not really, um, engaged in a way where they can have a mutuality, have a, have a, have a sense of togetherness in this, you know? Um, and it took us, it took us uh, eight and a half years after we started dating at 18, um, kind of on and off again a little bit to get mature enough to actually handle the responsibilities of Christian marriage. So, um, wow. Yeah. But you yeah. figured it out. I mean, that's, we did. that's we did. inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, and so I've, I've got a lot of hope for folks that have these kinds of dynamics. Sometimes you hear that, you know, narcissists can't be treated. It's a very common thing. It's, it's, it's pathological. You'll hear, um, you know, that, uh, you know, you can, you can treat the symptoms, but you can't get to the root. And I don't believe any of that. I think what happens is that we wind up just treating the symptoms and we don't actually get to those deep unmet needs, those deep unmet integrity needs and the deep unmet attachment needs. If you, and that's sort of like treating, um, like if you were to go into the hospital and you had, um, into the emergency room and you had intense abdominal pain and you had a high fever and they said, oh, you have intense abdominal pain and high fever disorder. So we're going to give you, you know, Tylenol to take down the fever and we're going to give you some kind of painkiller to, to address the pain. Um, and then your appendix ruptures because, you know, that's really what the underlying problem is. They didn't do you any, they didn't do you any good. And so much of what we do in psychology is chase the symptoms. You know, we chase the symptoms. We don't actually um, look at what are the underlying, what are the underlying causes that are much further upstream you know, if you address those, it gets so much easier. I want to explore that now because this idea of treating narcissism and the underlying causes, like you said, some people say that's not possible. Right. I mean, there's a lot of um, psychologists I, that I've talked to over the years and psychiatrists, and you read about it on, you know, whatever, WebMD, or you go to a website <laughs> and you're going to see that it says narcissism is not something that can be treated clinically. It can be managed, basically. It can be managed, yeah. It can't be, it can't be uh, solved or healed. So let's start with what does it look like to actually heal narcissism? And, and one other thing, too, I don't think yeah. we've done, Dr. Peter, actually, and I should do this is, or I should ask you to do this for us, is we still haven't, we've defined the tendencies of narcissism. We've said that, you know, there, yeah, there can be some sort of a spectrum, but 
when do you know that you're dealing with, let's say, clinical narcissism? Is there such a thing? And then, yes, how do we heal it? You know, technically, that should be diagnosed by a professional, okay? Um, I, you know, because that's something that requires, um, you know, if you want certainty on that, that's something that typically psychologists or psychiatrists would do. Um, we what can are talk they looking about, at? Like, what are the, are they looking at like see, a list of 10 factors? See, unfortunately, I think too many of them are looking at the surface. They're using the DSM criteria. And I think that that's a mistake because I think it, it doesn't get to like what the underlying, um, what the underlying need is. That's why there's a lot of confusion, disagreements. Um, you know, sometimes the, the, the inner rate of reliability of diagnostic, you know, uh, impressions is low. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing sometimes to see how poorly we do this. Um, but yet the, the phenomenon is real, right? So there's, it's a both and, um, I think, I think it's really hard because so many times people are so good at hiding what's inside and you don't really have the capacity to see in there, especially when you're caught up in the relationship. It's so much harder to diagnose things accurately in your own family like that's for, you know that's the reason why you know psychologists psychiatrists we're not allowed to to clinically treat our our family members is because we don't have anything like the uh, perspective that's needed to be able to do that accurately and so that's compounded when um you know when uh there are so many other things at play and so much going on in the unconscious uh so many things that we don't realize so it's it's difficult i would say that a lot of times it's it's helpful to bring in another person when there's conflict in a marriage uh when there's difficulties bring in somebody that's a competent marital therapist that both of you feel like you can trust uh not to be a judge or a referee that's the that's often a, a role that you know that spouses will want the therapist to get into sort of an arbiter you know um but to to understand the situation from a third perspective and to be able to get that give that perspective you know so so that's often really, really helpful because it's so easy for the for the wagon wheels to get back in the same old ruts uh, and to, for the cycles to kind of continue. So, but you've mentioned a few things. You've mentioned you know the inability to feel remorse. Um, mm -hmm. You've mentioned you know basically using another person for self esteem and not really caring about them depending on the context. Like if I get self esteem out of you privately, great, but in public, I'm not going right. to give you special treatment because I'm looking for it elsewhere. Right. Um, what are some other elements then of, of narcissism just to kind of help classify this for folks and then and then obviously we'll get into the healing sure so the central tension for somebody who's narcissistic is this inflation versus deflation of self-esteem it's all about self-esteem it's all about do i am i feeling you know am i feeling good about myself am i can i look at myself positively or am i overwhelmed with shame that's the central tension or the central preoccupation the, uh, the central emotions are shame, humiliation, contempt, and contempt is a mixture of um, anger and disgust and envy. These are the emotions that you will typically experience. Uh, not so much the shame, because again, like I said, that's often really hidden, although sometimes you'll get windows into it. Like sometimes you, you might see a narcissist whose defenses are really down. And then you can see an incredible amount of shame really quickly. Um, but those are the central emotions. And then the belief about the self is I need to be perfect to be okay. Mm -hmm. 
I can't tolerate sort of any imperfections. Otherwise, the the fragile edifice that I am um, that I'm constructing here totally falls apart. It's like a it's like um, a leak in the dike, and that the whole dike's going to blow if if I had not acknowledge that there that I have flaws. And then the belief about others, and this is from the um, from the psychodynamic diagnostic manual too. This is more of this is a different diagnostic system that I like a lot better. That one is others enjoy riches, beauty, power, and fame. The more of these I have, the better I will feel. And so uh, again, it's an attempt to try to take what's outside to fill me up inside, rather than believing that in my essence I am good. In my essence, I am lovable. So those are, um, and then and then the central defenses are idealization and devaluation. Um, so idealization, what is that? Well, according to the APA dictionary, idealization is the exaggeration of positive attributes and the minimization of imperfections or failings associated with a person, place, or thing or situation so that the person is viewed as perfect or nearly perfect. Narcissistic folks will idealize others, you know, and, um, and then when those others fail them when they fail in their responsibilities or their functions to support the, 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 the fragile sense of self-esteem, they will go to the other side of the coin, which is devaluation. And that is, you know, denying the importance or the goodness of somebody cutting them down, uh, um, you know, looking at them as far worse than they, than they actually are. And so that idealization and devaluation is, a is, um, is a, is a, is a tell, if you will, although that exists in, in other personality styles, other personality disorders as well. So it sounds like a lot of, a, a tendency to yo-yoing, you know, yeah. it's hot and cold, it's up and down. Do you think some narcissistic tendencies or narcissists could be confused with something like bipolar disorder? You know, I, I, again, that's another symptom constellation, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say that those two go together. Because what what you see in bipolar disorder is, in, in terms of the manic episodes, if you look at a manic episode and you look at a depressive episode, they are like a photographic negative of each other. You know, in a depressive episode, you have this really low mood, and in a manic episode, you have euphoria, right? And so, if you look, if you go down the list, they're like it's it's not just a denial of depressive uh, dynamics; it's a so much of a denial that it's the exact opposite, right? So, uh, and when that happens, it's because um, the uh, a lot of times it's because there something has tapped into uh, a lot of unresolved grief, a lot of unresolved loss uh, that's not been spoken, and so there's this effort to, and again, it's unconscious. It's not like somebody says, "Oh, I think I'm gonna." I think I'm going to go manic. I think I'm going to really rev up right now. It's a it, it's something that happens automatically. But going back to that yo-yoing you said, I love this quote by Brie Bonche. She says, a relationship, so this is the relationship with a narcissist in a nutshell. I think it's really like a little pithy quote. She says, you will go from being the perfect love of their life to nothing you do is ever good enough. You will give your everything and they will take it all and give you less in return. You will end up depleted emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and probably financially, and then get blamed for it. I mean, that that's a lot of the, the, the sort of dynamic. It's like, 
whoa, like what, you know, and people begin to wonder when this is all breaking down, like, why was I ever involved with this person in the first place? You know, kind of going back to one So of it sounds like emotions. that quote is describing a cycle of love bombing to basically emotional, sometimes worse abuse, uh, even more than emotional abuse to gaslighting. So, you know, it's, but it's interesting because the person on the other end of it will assume that this is primarily a relational thing. And the brutal truth of is of it is that it's not the the other person the 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 person with the narcissistic dynamics is not seeing you, like mm-hmm. it's not really about you. It's about their um their efforts to try to overcome this this devastating and threatening sense of shame. Like it it's it's so there's a lot less malice. Um, you know, in this, then people realize now that doesn't mean that folks with narcissistic dynamics cannot be malicious. Sometimes they will attack, um, and uh, and it can be really awful. Uh, but there, that attack is even driven by by fear, by the sense of exposure, by the disappointment, by the way that you've uh, in, often inadvertently wounded them. You know, and so uh, when you see those kinds of attacks, um. It can look like it's even psychopathic, but it's 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 a desperate attempt to. And I'm not justifying it, by the way. Sometimes people are worried, like, "Hey, you know, you're saying it's okay." No, I'm not saying it's okay. It's not okay, but it can be. It 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 really is driven by the 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 sense of 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 nothingness inside, and that's what you need to get to if you wanna if you want to um if you want to heal. And it's unfortunately it's it's certainly possible to get there, but it's it's not common yet. I hope that in the future, more people will, will adopt ways in which they can begin to address this. I think some of these um, these uh, new therapies that are coming out, relatively new therapies that involve parts, um, are, are really hopeful because one of the things that uh, I really like about internal family systems, for example, is that this these dynamics are played out by parts. It's not all of the person. It's not all of the person. You know, it's it's a, it, these these parts of the person are up in front. They're 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 guiding the person. They're 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 they have a lot of influence over how the person acts. A lot of influence over the person's will, but they're not the entire story. So I have always had a hard time finding skincare products that I really liked and wanted to continue using. I've tried a lot of different products, so I was really excited to discover NimiSkincare.com. That's Nimi N I M I Skincare.com. What's so awesome about Nimi is it's a beautiful brand that shares our values. It's a pro-life, pro-family brand, but that doesn't mean necessarily the product is going to be amazing. So I tried the product a few months ago and I fell in love. Nimi Skincare has an amazing vitamin C cream that I love using, an evening moisturizer that I've been using, and I also really love their sunscreen. They have amazing products that are simple. The ingredients are no nonsense. They're listed on the website. You know what you're using on your skin, and the price point is great. So check out nimiskincare.com. I think you're going to really enjoy their products. That's nimiskincare.com, and you can get 15% off your order using the code Lila at checkout. All right, so you mentioned internal family systems a couple times now. What do you mean by that? So that is, is a, that? a model of therapy that was developed in the late 80s and early and throughout the 90s and to the present day by uh, by Richard Schwartz, who was a licensed marriage and family therapist. And he what he discovered was that um, that or what he what he identified is that when he was doing family therapy, when he was working with with families, that even when the 
dynamics in the family were improving. In other words, people were behaving better towards each other in the family. Those patterns were still like going on inside the dysfunctional patterns were still going on inside of the individual family members. In other words, it was like they had incorporated it or they had internalized that family system. So that's why it's called internal family systems. And so he, he came to popularize a couple of really important things. One is that we are not just one single homogenous personality, which is one of the reasons why I do push back also against you know, sort of narcissistic personality disorder or any personality. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have just one personality. Um, I did this podcast episode number 118 of Interior Integration for Catholics, which is why a single personality is not enough. It doesn't explain enough. So we have, I argue, these different parts within us, these constellations of emotions, of of uh, of thoughts, feelings, beliefs, of desires and impulses that last over time. They're like they feel like little persons within us, little personalities within mm-hmm. us. You can think of them as modes of operating, and uh, and they exist even when they are forced into the unconscious. So there's this sense that we are one. In other words, we're one system, but we have these different parts. And if we begin to understand ourselves in in that way so much of this gets so much easier to 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 deal with like in other words um we can we can begin to connect with these parts realize that um that it's one part of us that carries all this shame it's not all of us right or it's this one part of us that Mm -hmm. um that revs up and it's not all of us so that's the one thing multiplicity that that we're both one and many, which for me was a huge thing because I'd always wondered, how do we love ourselves? Like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, what does that mean? Like, what, what, am I supposed to love my body? If we have a single consciousness personality, how do we do that? And um, and then the second thing is this sort of systems thinking that these that these that these parts interact in predictable ways amongst themselves, and that actually uh, we can. Um, we can uh, we can work with them, and I was forced into this because of trauma work. Because I was working with folks that had dissociative identity disorder, you aren't going to avoid dealing with parts in that situation. That's just an extreme manifestation of it. And then I started to realize other people have parts, and then I realized I have parts, you know. And uh, and these and and once um, once I realized that, so many things got a lot easier actually in my own life as well. So just to break that down more, when you talk about these parts of your, say, personality, your person, your, and then you mentioned family systems, like how you show up in your family, how you show up to your primary relationships, maybe, and tell me if this is the wrong way to describe or try to tell you back what you just shared, it's activated, activating certain parts of your personality, but there are parts of your personality that can be very latent or sort of right, disengaged right, and they right. can get activated in other ways. And you may go your whole life with certain aspects really unacted and activated. And the problem with that is then you're not fully alive. Fully or you're alive. Not fully human. Fully alive. You know, when you, when you, because you you're suppressing at, something, is yeah, that what it well, is? You're suppressing a part of you that you cannot exactly, find manifestation exactly. for. And so it's going to actually, even if you seem, there seems to be harmony in the family system. If one person is not showing up with the, with all of their parts, even if there appears to be harmony, that's not a healthy system. Exactly. You can have a situation in which just a few parts have suppressed all the other parts, which is a really common, which is a really common uh, state of affairs. Sort of think of it like a, like a ship, you know, with a few 
couple of officers on the deck and the rest of the parts down in the brig sort of locked down because those parts are deemed unlovable, unacceptable, mm-hmm. unpresentable. Those are the parts that are going to get rejected. Rejected. If this part comes up, uh, I'm not going to get what I need. So there are some manager parts, we call them manager parts, that are trying to navigate day-to-day life. And unfortunately, um, you know, they do not have the capacity to take over that role. That's the role of the innermost self. We have an innermost self as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's supposed to be like the captain of the ship or the conductor of the orchestra where the different parts are like the musicians. So if you think about an orchestra, we need all of the musicians, right? For the orchestra to be full, you know? Um, but so often the musicians are fighting amongst themselves, uh, you know, the, the, their parts in conflict with themselves, um, and, um, with each other and, and banishing each other, you know, and, and working out things in ways that are are really counterproductive, that are really harmful to one's own self and to other people in relationship. And so one of the things I'm really excited about is the possibility of how do we bring these parts together to work in harmony, right? How do we have this interior integration? How do we have what St. Thomas Aquinas called this unity inside, this interior integration? Because the way we love ourselves, Lila, St. Thomas says, is the root and form. It's the template for the way we're going to love other people. Um, and so it's not just an optional thing uh, to love ourselves. It's actually essential for us to be able to love our neighbor and for us to be able to love God. And so, and I, I'll, I'll give you an example. I had suppressed, um, th- I, I grew up in some environments in which to show fear was uh, to set yourself up as being like prey. Okay. Like it was a dangerous thing to, to, to show fear. And so, um, I went through the early part of my life into adulthood, um, fearless. And I thought that was courageous, but it's not actually, it's just not feeling fear. So it was useful in certain situations like, um, like, uh, emergency situations, crisis situations. I never dropped into a freeze response. I never dropped into a dorsal vagal shutdown. I didn't have any of that ever happened to me. I was able to take action, um, and, uh, and, and to be effective in those situations, I, 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 I still like to chase dogs, like when I'm running, you know, and, and a dog chases me, I, this shocks the dogs, but I turn around and this part of me, I have a part of me, this is my former intimidator part, who is now my guardian part takes over and I chase the dog. Mm-hmm. The last one that chased me was a pit bull. You know, he came at me. I thought he was going to, and, and, and as soon as I saw him off to the left, I ran right at him. He slowed down. He turned around. He wasn't expecting this. We have these different parts that can take over in different situations. But as part of that, when my 16-year-old, when my son was 16, my oldest son was 16, he spun out on black ice. He was learning how to drive um, on 465, mm-hmm. the beltway around Indianapolis. Um, I, if, and I, was, I was just starting to get in touch with some of my, my fear at that time. Um, and I wasn't able to connect very well with him yet in his fear, right? Because I had rejected fear within myself. I wasn't able to embrace it very well in him, you know, and it led to, it led to a disconnect for us. And we worked through that, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I said, well, you know, you just get back in the car you, and then you spun out, but the car wasn't harmed. Just get back in, drive it home, you know? And, and my wife was, again, PM was more like, hey, uh, let's, let's treat this a little differently. You know, let's, let's, let's have a little compassion for him. You know, uh, but anything that we don't re- that we don't accept within ourselves, we're not mm-hmm. going to reject within another within another person because it's going to start to activate our own stuff. the The biggest obstacle. Well, let me not say that. I'm not sure it's true. 
I was going to say the biggest obstacle to loving another person is, um, is not loving yourself. I think it's a major obstacle and it puts a limit on how much we can love another person. St. Thomas says, you cannot love your neighbor more than you love yourself. Um, and it's for these kind of reasons. You can't have a, a union with another person if you're fragmented inside. And that's the, that's the, that's the terrible thing about psychological disorders most, most generally is that we have this fragmentation inside. We don't know who we are. Seven Weeks Coffee is delicious gourmet coffee that can be shipped directly to your home. If you go to sevenweekscoffee.com, you'll learn the story of not only an amazing company that supports your pro-life values, but a company that creates and crafts some of the best and most gourmet coffee blends. I love drinking Seven Weeks Coffee because I'm not only getting an amazing cup of coffee, but I am supporting the pro-life movement every time I take a sip of Seven Weeks. Why is that? That's because as you guys may have heard already on the show, I've talked about it before, Seven Weeks Coffee gives 10% of their revenue, not just their profits, 10% of all revenue directly to Pregnancy Resource Center. So when you drink that great cup of coffee, you are directly supporting the care for mothers and babies in need. Seven Weeks Coffee is called Seven Weeks because that is when the baby at seven weeks pre-born is the size of, yes, a coffee bean. Check out Seven Weeks Coffee today. You can use the code Lila at checkout for 10% off your order. If you haven't already tried it, what are you waiting for? That's sevenweekscoffee.com. Use the code Lila at checkout for 10% off your order. So what would you say then to somebody who is in a family system or in a relationship and they, you know, they're operating, they're, they're grateful, they're operational, you know, things are going, it's not perfect, that's life. How would you assess whether that person is really fully alive, fully actualized, living their potential if they're kind of suppressing something to, to keep it going and keep the peace basically? So the number, the number one thing I would look at is how well are they able to, to love? How well are they able mm -hmm. to tolerate being loved? And how well are they able to love in return? The, that would be my marker now. Um, that's not an easy thing to necessarily assess. Um, and I did a lot of psychological assessment. I did, did a lot of, um, of, um, of, uh, of assessments for the church. Um, and it's hard to assess like a person's capacity to love. The more important something is, the harder it is to measure uh, psychologically. Um, mm. But one of the things that I would do, and I, I specialized in doing uh, seminarian assessments, assessments for uh, candidates for the, the priesthood and religious life. Oh, wow. That and must have been interesting. Yeah, it was really <laughs> must be interesting. Yeah, because these folks were showing up, these guys were showing up and not because they you know, had some sort of psychological difficulty that they were presenting with, you know, but because, and I did other, I did other assessments too. I did, um, like, um, uh, fitness for duty evaluations for the, mm -hmm. for the federal aviation administration, things like that, uh, sensitive positions and so forth. So, but what I would do, um, and this was really, this is really helpful for uh, identifying narcissism is I had a full length mirror up like a six foot mirror up in my, in my office wide, tall. And I would, I would ha ask, ask the candidate to stand in front of the mirror and look at himself in the mirror for about 30 seconds. And I would stand next to him. And then I would ask the most difficult question in the whole eight hours. My, my assessments took between six and eight hours. It was really, really in depth. I would ask the single most difficult question. So I've got the candidate looking in the mirror and I would say, who are you? 
Look at your, you know, the instructions was he had to look at himself, which is an important part of this. Um, and tell me who you are. Who are you? That was the one that, that was the question that by far and away, the seminarian candidates had the, the most difficulty with. It wasn't anything wow. on the extensive sexual inter history interview or any of that stuff. It wasn't about talking that stuff. It was about who am I? And you got a whole variety of different responses that were that were diagnostic, plus all of the other, like the body language and the shuffling and the looking away and like all the other things that indicated how so uncomfortable they would were with this question. Be, would health be like looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, I am a, I am a beloved son of God or daughter of God, and like with confidence and it depends. It like, depends. Because you could say you, that what? defensively too. Like you could say okay. that defensively. Okay, I got a lot of catechism answers, for example. You know, uh, you know, it depends on how they say it. Like, you know. All right. So what do, what's the narcissist response and what's the non-narcissist response? So, so it, well, it, you know, when, when, when folks, um, so a lot of it, so a lot of this required some clinical intuition, right? Um, what you will find is that folks that struggle with narcissism do not want to look in the mirror. They do not want to look in the mirror and respond to this. Now that's kind of counterintuitive because the myth of narcissists, you know, is the idea that this, 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 uh, this guy fell in love with his reflection, right? It's not like that at all. Actually, they really do not want to look inside. That is terrifying for them because again, what's in there, it's a void. They feel like it's a void. Like there's nothing in there, like there's meaninglessness, right? So to look at, um, to look at, um, to look at themselves, you'll see things like, um, pupil dilation, you'll see respiratory rates go up. You'll, you'll hear stammering, like not able to articulate a clear answer. Um, sometimes you'll get them to, to tell you their name. You know, they'll say like, I'm, you know, for me, like I'm Peter Malinowski, I'm the son of, you know, whoever their parents are. Um, and that in and of itself isn't, uh, doesn't give you just, a, a, a an immediate sure diagnostic, um, impression, you know, you have to combine it with other things. I really like the Rorschach, for example, the, the Rorschach was wonderful. The blood test at helping to identify narcissistic dynamics. Um, because again, it's a blood you, test. No, it's a it's the ink blot test. It's the oh, ink the ink blot test. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, if you don't, test. yeah, if you don't so have it's a like good blood yeah, test, <laughs> no, not a blood. How test. How does that work? How does yeah, the blot no, test work? No, you can't. I don't. I don't know of a way that you can do it. But that's again not my area of expertise. I don't know if hematology would you know, help you in terms of de de of de determining narcissism. But but the ink blot test. If you don't have a good response to a percept, if you cannot see something in a way that a healthy person would, you can't make it up very well unless you somehow like study the test or something like that beforehand, you know? So, um, so those were ways because everybody coming in for that, uh, the seminarians, most of them were not actively trying to misrepresent themselves because they weren't trying to game the system, but they know that They've got to, mm -hmm. quote, pass the test if they're going to go on to seminary. And so there's some real natural ways that they're trying to put their best foot forward. They're trying to curate the image and so forth. So uh, and part of our job was to see, okay, do they, do they, do they really have um, the right kind of human formation? Are they, where are they developmentally? What are their, uh, their blocks and so forth? Uh, because I'll tell you that in the church, if you're going into the diocesan priesthood, 
the demands and the intensity of that life and the lack of support in most dioceses requires mm-hmm. that the candidate have not just an, a sort of normal level of human formation, but they need really a much higher than that level of human formation in order mm-hmm. to, 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 to survive those kinds of demands. Because most people do not understand priests at all. They cannot actually see very clearly what is going on kind of in the inside of a priest. So, um, so yeah, they wind up with uh, having to be misunderstood a lot. Yeah, I think in the modern world, people look at priests. I mean, there's a lot of contempt because of, you know, sex abuse right. scandals and anti-religion and anti-faith motivations. But also, I think people just don't get it. You know, like celibacy, man of, you know, man of the cloth. Like, why why do this? Why not? If you're going to be a Christian, go be a pastor and have a wife at least. You know, I think there's a <laughs> there's a, a deep misunderstanding about what is this priesthood thing anyways. Well, a a lot of evangelicals, I think, rightly can under understandably don't get it you know like why would you do this but also bound up in it for for catholics too for those that would understand at least some of the the um theological or or pastoral implications of it it's too wound up in father it's too wound up in god's representative like there Mm -hmm. there's too many associations too many what we call transferences where i'm transferring you know, things that I feel toward God. It's too threatening to feel this toward God, but I can certainly feel this toward the priest who represents God, right? I'm too threatened to take this into my relationship with God, but I'll take it into the relationship with the priest, you know, and all of the father stuff. Um, early in my career, I was I was interested in uh, why so many people were looking at God as mother or calling God mother. And every time I encountered that, I didn't, you know, I was curious about it and I found that there was a toxic father image. There was a toxic father relationship. And and so these folks weren't so much just militating to uh, you know, to 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 see God as mother because of some theological or scriptural basis, although they would sometimes invoke those sorts of things. They were trying to not become agnostic or atheists. They were trying to hold on to some kind of image of God because of how toxic the father image was they went to something that wasn't nearly so toxic. And so God as mother allowed them to continue to believe in a God. These ways that we experience authority figures uh, get transferred into how we see God. It's called God image. They're called God images. They're, they're unconscious. They're sort of formed into us. And I would argue that each of our parts have a different God image, which is why when those parts are not in right relationship with their self, with itself, with the innermost self, you can wind up looking at God in very different ways at different points, even during a day, you know? Um, and so, uh, so it's, it's, it's the, the way that, uh, we are these sort of body and soul composites, the way that we are these embodied beings, you know, the way that, that, that psychology, for example, impacts the faith is, is, is fascinates me because there's a far greater influence than people realize. And that's why I think St. John Paul II in Pastoris Davo Vobius' apostolic exhortation from 1992 said that all formation, all formation, spiritual formation, intellectual formation, pastoral formation is grounded in human formation. And that's why it's really important that we address these human formation issues because so many spiritual problems are really just, are just spiritual consequences of human formation issues. You resolve the underlying issue, it makes it so much easier. You, the person has a good experience of fatherhood, 
you know, in the natural realm, in maybe in therapy, for example. And now it becomes so much easier to look at God as a loving father because there's some frame of reference for that that didn't exist before. That's such a good point because you can have these sort of uh, very maybe extensive demonstrations of spirituality, but if the rooted, if it's not rooted in that healthy human formation, mm -hmm. uh, it could also be in its own way, very toxic or broken. And I think there's so much misunderstanding around that. Um, and I, we've only touched the surface even in this conversation. Like I've so, this is only opening up so many more things we should be, we can talk about. Um, you've mentioned a few times this idea of parts Mm -hmm. And we talked about the family systems a little bit, but when you say you go out throughout a day and you have different parts that are not all, maybe they, 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 they respond in disharmony. So one mm -hmm. part sees God correctly as father, you know, uh, who loves you unconditionally and another part, God is distant or God is scary or whatever it is. Right. How does somebody know if their parts are not, what are their parts and how does someone know whether their parts are in harmony or are healed? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I would argue the best way to do that is by developing a relationship with your parts and talking with them, you know, connecting. With what them. are your parts? What, what do you so, mean when so you say let's, parts? Yeah, let's actually do like a definition of, of parts. What, um, what are they, you know, what are these, these things that I'm talking about? Um, well, they're, they're like these constellations of, so some people will describe them, they feel like little persons within you, right? So like, um, or separate personalities. But that, that language is a little bit problematic from a Catholic you know, kind of anthropology, but, but it feels that way. It feels like, like Jekyll and Hyde. You know, some people will use that example, right? Like, I don't know what came over me, right? But all mm -hmm. of a sudden I'm raging, um, I'm angry. Uh, the entire world looks is kind of through that filter. The the movie, the Pixar movie, Inside Out. Um, mm -hmm. Those are like little. Those are examples of like parts, right? And you can see when those parts take over the control panel, it's really that's part that part's perspective on everything, relationships. That part's perspective. The part's beliefs on 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 anything that's going on within them. I think of them sometimes. Sometimes people find it helpful to think of them as modes of operating. Right. Mm -hmm. So some people can recognize that I've got a mode of operating. When I go and visit my parents, I have a mode of operating. I'm shut down. I'm numbed out, you know, and there's a whole bunch of feelings mm -hmm. and thoughts and beliefs and attitudes and ways of looking at things that kind of go with that. So there are these, I would think of these, of these parts as constellations of emotions, uh, desires, impulses, attitudes, uh, assumptions about the world, ways of interacting uh, with other people, and images of of God, and um, and we have a number of them. What happens when um, when there's trauma is that they often get fragmented away from the the a kind of unity with the self. They're not integrated anymore, and so often that's a protective aspect. Right. So an extreme example, somebody that's got flashbacks due to combat trauma. Right. And all of a sudden they're walking down, you know, they're walking down fourth street, they hear a car backfire and they're in the ditch. Why? Because a part that experienced combat is come to the front and misinterpreted that sound. You know, they're flashing back to when they were in, you know, in a combat situation and they believe that part, that part believes that this is all happening all over again. Right? That's an extreme kind of example of a part taking over. 
But we also have, you know, other parts, parts that want to get things done that are sort of our, our taskmasters, right? We have parts that are like our, an inner critic. A lot of people are familiar with an inner critic, you know, a voice kind of like within your head that gives running commentary about all the things you're not doing right, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and an effort to try to help you, you know, the parts have good intentions. They are trying to help, but they go about it in a way that is, um, that is, uh, if they're not integrated with the innermost self, if they're not working in concert with the rest of you, they, they, they get what they don't want. They wind up undermining their good intentions. So, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's sort of parts in a nutshell. Um, and when you say the inner, persons. when you say the innermost self, it's basically, you know, all of these parts of how you show up, your habits of behavior, your habits of thought. Uh, they need to be oriented around what is true, good, beautiful, mm -hmm. the fact that you are loved, lovable, and, you know, called to love. And so it's habits of self-awareness coupled with habits of virtue. Um, and virtues, not just the, uh, you know, the classical virtues, but the theological right. ones, like right. really practicing, willing the good for the other and believing the best and hoping what, you know, hoping the best. That's how you basically develop your parts <laughs> yeah this is a I mean, very rough layman's yeah uh, <laughs> no no no. i appreciate i appreciate that you're that you're struggling with this it's great so the innermost mm -hmm. self some people think of it as uh your best self you know when you who you are in your finest moments mm -hmm. um where the parts are not dominating right you're not dominated by any passions for example if you want to put that in more optimistic language uh some people will think of the innermost self as the seat of consciousness um, you know, where, you know, you are in your sort of inmost being. Um, and there are different qualities associated with that innermost self. The innermost self is calm. It's compassionate. It's creative. It desires connection. It's, it, there's these, these, these different qualities about that innermost self. Uh, and when I've noticed this, you know, over and over again, when people, when people's parts are willing to let go of control of the system, you do see the innermost self emerge. It's like a, hmm. a constraint release model. And the idea is that these qualities are innate. In other words, they're God-given. You don't actually have to develop them, which was hmm. astonishing to me that we actually have this within us because I do believe we do. Now, I do believe that the innermost self also has to develop in certain ways. You know, it needs to take on that leadership role within, within the self and help guide uh, these parts because phenomenologically these parts are often really young they actually are often um the the age the chronological age they feel themselves to be the chronological age when the trauma happened and then they were forced into this extreme role of being banished because that was the part that stepped into the breach took all the shame from you know from when that abuse or that neglect happened or that you know betrayal trauma happened and then the other parts like forced that part into uh, the unconscious, sealed it off, exiled it so that um, you wouldn't be overwhelmed all the time. You know, just, but sometimes that breaks out, just like that combat veteran I was talking about. Like Sometimes that breaks out and we wind up back in the grip of where we were um, when we were four or 12 or seven or whenever. And so a lot of the work that I do as a psychologist now is really about like developing a relationship with these parts, letting them um, seeing them, hearing them kind of going through these attachment needs and these integrity needs on a part by part basis, having their deep, having the deep needs met. Um, and when you, when that happens, things just fall into place. So you're not chasing the symptoms on the surface. You're actually meeting the needs at the level of the parts. 
And that, that was the game changer for me. That was like, that's what sold me on this. Because for me, if we go back to when I was 19 and I was, you know, uh, wanting to attract every woman in the room, um, you know, it was about, it wasn't about those relationships. It wasn't about whether I, I, I could connect with, you know, one or another of them or go out with them or whatever. It was about the shame. It was about having a sense that I wasn't good enough to be loved. That's if you deal with that, if you can connect at the level of being loved and knowing that you're okay and that mm -hmm. you are beloved as you are, it simplifies so many things. But the hard thing mm -hmm. for so many people is to tolerate being loved in that way. Most people have parts, they have defenses that do not want to be loved, that flee from uh, love because most people know that if love is real, it's given freely, right? But love, authentic love is not received without cost. If you're going to let love actually into you, it's going to burn away things that are um, disordered. It's going to burn away things that are, are, um, are sinful. It's going to, it's going to require you to be vulnerable. If you're going to take that in, it's going to require you to be known um, to be seen, you're going to have to allow yourself to be open and receptive to that love, which is coming from another person. You have to let that person in. This is the tragedy of, of narcissism is that there's a shutting down of that because of the fear that if that opens up, that you'll be overwhelmed by the nothingness and the, the meaninglessness and it won't, it won't work out well. So, um, so that, that's a lot of what, um, what I think actually heals at the level, at the deepest level is, can I tolerate being loved in my entire being, or am I only going to be loved in the parts that I put in the shop window, you know, that, uh, that I deem good enough to be, uh, in relationship with other people. It sounds like if I'm understanding you correctly to really heal narcissism, and honestly, to heal any fracture between one's parts and, and sort of the clouding of one's true self that God has designed, it requires opening yourself up to God's love and believing what is true about God, that he is love. If there's one thing I want for people is that they can embrace their identity as beloved little sons and daughters of God, you know, and, and that is to, to not have to earn it. You know, I was... I was really successful in high school and college. I was 4.0 student, you know, two sport athlete, you know, I, you know, academically really strong, you know, a long sort of a list of credentials and achievements and so forth. And it was, it was all an effort to try to become good enough to be loved, you know, good enough to be noticed, good enough. Like the, the fantasy is if I only achieve enough, then um, then, uh, I wouldn't have framed it quite this way, but then God would love me or then I would be good enough to be loved. It was really more like good enough to be loved. Then I would get what I needed. And I think those kind of dynamics take on different forms and different kind of people, uh, and they lead to different personality styles. If those styles become more, more extreme or hardened, we tend to see them as personality disorders, but um, but I just believe that the personalities are just whatever parts tend to be on the surface most office, mm. you know, and it neglects the rest of the person. It's just what you typically see. So, 
So it kind of sounds like you're saying in a way we all have th the same personality. I mean, they see Jesus as the perfect, right. uh, you know, per right. the perfection of all the temperaments, right? right. That right. the more, the more healthy you become, the more balanced your temperament becomes. I think the more that we are integrated, and I think the vast majority of people are not integrated very well. I think it's a really exceptional thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I think the potential is there. Like, I think we can get there. Um, but I think the more that you are able to connect with your parts, the better you will understand uh, and the uh, other people and the more of a repertoire you'll have of ways of acting. You know, so when I was able to get in touch with the part of me that carried fear, instead of just banishing that part, seeing that part as a threat, right? Because I don't want to, you know, be, you know, become prey, right? Because uh, parts of me were caught back when situations were more, diff more, more dangerous. You know, if I can connect with that part, if I can love that part, if I can appreciate that part, not only can I now start being courageous instead of just fear fearless, because courage is actually acknowledging the fear. It involves actually acknowledging the fear. Um, but I can appreciate why other people might be afraid. I'm not threatened by other people being afraid, you know? Um, and so then, I mean, that just opens me up to be able to be gentle and soft and kind with other people who are, you know, in various, you know, various kinds of, of situations. And that's what, um, that's what I think we really need to be able to, to connect with our own parts, because there are parts of us that help us understand their counterparts in another person. And so when they're, when, when I'm in right relationship with my parts, when my innermost self is in right relationship with my parts, then those parts can contribute to the music. Then my trombone player can join in. Then my trumpeter can play in, but so can my piccolo player and they're not drowning each other out and they're not fighting, you know? And so then, then I'm able to love the Lord, my God with my whole heart, not just with the parts of me that are happen to be on the uh, in the, on the surface, but with every fiber of my being. Ultimately, what I want is for us to be able to become love. I think that's what we're called to, to actually embody love. And that means like a radical acceptance of our own selves. That means a radical love of our own selves so that we're free with the entirety of our being to love our neighbor uh, and to love God. That's what I think we need to aspire to. I think, um, I think it's, I think that's really what, that's, that's really what motivates me. And so to have, to have that start, you know, we say that, you know, charity begins at home. You know, we tend to think about it in terms of the people around us. I'm going to take it even closer to home, right? To, to within ourselves. Uh, and so this isn't some sort of just self-absorbed narcissistic navel gazing, you know, put the put the uh, cucumbers on my eyes and lie back and light the aromatherapy mm -hmm. candles and pamper myself. It's really about, it's really about uh, a boot camp. It's really about um, being able to love myself so that I can love other people and love God. It's not, it's not something that's just self-indulgent. And that's where, that's where the narcissists really, really struggle. That's their particular weakness is that they cannot love themselves because they won't look at themselves because they find themselves too threatening, the emptiness and so forth. And what happens is they wind up getting that confirmed when they interact with people in these negative mm -hmm. ways that, you know, that can even be exploitive, you know, they get a lot of negative feedback and it continues to perpetuate that cycle. 
I think we're going to need to do a part two, Dr. Peter, how to love yourself. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I think there's so much practical. Uh, I'm sure you could lay out and this is your your practice, right? But right. those practical steps, because I think in the theological realm, it's very fraught. You know, you don't want to really be self-love, you know, is looked at as a bad thing. Typically, scripturally, I know, um, you know, what that means, self-absorption, self-perception, right. right. selfishness. So, so much more to unpack. So we're going to have to have you back on the podcast. If I that's would okay love with to be you. back, Lila. In the, <laughs> to, meantime, to in the meantime, episodes 97 and 98 of the interior integration for podcast for the interior integration for catholics it's all about loving yourself and how difficult mm -hmm. it is to love yourself and why you know uh that is a book i would eventually like to write because there's so much confusion about it so much confusion oh about please what does do it mean? write that book <laughs> yeah what does it mean to love yourself yeah. but start with those podcast those podcasts interior integration for catholics 97 98 all about self-love and and a way to to actually conceptualize mm -hmm. that, like to begin to think about that and begin to practice that. That's what we do at Souls and Hearts. Ultimately, we're all about the three great loves, to love your neighbor, to love God, but but to love yourself too. Because if you don't have that, you can't have the other two. So good. Uh, Dr. Peter, where can people find your work? So check us out at soulsandhearts.com. Um, and that's our outreach. We want to bring the best of human formation resources, psychological resources to the public. Uh, we do that through podcasts and I have a weekly reflection that I do, but also through our communities, like the Resilient Catholics community, where we're really break, working on human formation in a year long, in a year long kind of concentrated way in small groups where you don't have to do it by yourself. Uh, just we've had hundreds of people go through that already and i just encourage people if you're interested in this part stuff you know, can check out again interior integration for catholics episode 71 is a summary of internal family systems so if you want to understand that better check that out episode 73 is is internal family systems really catholic so we get into some of those questions too for folks that um that are concerned about that because there are some adjustments that we make for that but and it but sounds yeah. like you don't have to be Catholic to benefit no, from, no. from what I'm you're not, describing. Most of the people that train me in this, most of the people that gave me the most uh, helpful kinds of things were not Catholic, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, not, almost none of my training was, you know, had a Catholic focus. But we do, we do provide some human formation resources for therapists um, mm -hmm. as well in the interior therapist community. So people can check that out if your therapist is interested in this kind of stuff. Because that's the thing that I think really holds therapists back from doing this work with their clients. The number one reason why I think therapists don't help their narcissistic clients is because they don't really see them. They don't really mm -hmm. understand them and they get afraid um, and they, they don't have enough sort of interior integration and peace inside, enough presence to be able to tolerate the difficulties of the relationship. And so... Um, so yeah, so I'm a huge advocate of therapists getting the formation they need to. I'm talking, 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 my life. Uh, no, it's awesome. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Peter. This has been amazing. And we'll, we're going to have to have you back because there's so much more to explore. But thanks so much for joining the show. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Lila. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate you doing this work and, and, and your audience doing their work too. Because whenever, whenever somebody does that work, uh, it builds up it builds up the entire, we're all one big system, right? I mean, mm. we're all to in this together mm. in this mystical body of Christ, or even just being on the same planet. So when, when somebody loves themselves, that makes the whole world a better place. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Peter. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Lila Rose podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, do not forget to subscribe. Give us five stars if you're listening on Spotify or on Apple. And don't forget to hit the notification bell if you are listening and watching on YouTube. Also, we've just launched our new Locals community. Please join the Locals community. If you join as a member for $9.99 a month, so $10 a month, you get some special behind-the-scenes access. We will also be sending you a free downloadable copy of my of a chapter from my book that I never released, which I think is very cool. There's some other goodies on there too, so go check it out. And that link is in the bio. We'll see you next time.